Today's reading is from 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 1 through 27. Uh, it's printed on page 6 of your bulletin if you'd like to read along. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not the result of my work in the Lord? Even though I may not be an apostle to others, surely I am to you. For you are the soul of my apostleship in the Lord. This is my defense to those who sit in judgment on me. Don't we have the right to food and drink? Don't we have the right to take a believing wife along with us? As do the other apostles and the Lord's brothers in Cephas? Or is it only I and Barnabas who lack the right to not work for a living? Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard and does not eat its grapes? Who tends a flock and does not drink the milk? Do I say this merely on human authority? Doesn't the law say the same thing? For it is written in the law of Moses, do not muzzle an ox while it is treading out the grain. Is it about oxen that God is concerned? Surely he says this for us, doesn't he? Yes, this was written for us, because whoever plows and threshes should be able to do so in the hope of sharing in the harvest. If we have sown spiritual seed among you, is it too much if we reap a material harvest from you? If others have this right of support from you, shouldn't we have it all the more? But we did not use this right. On the contrary, we put up with anything rather than hinder the gospel of Christ. Don't you know that those who serve in the temple get their food from the temple? And that those who serve at the altar share in what is offered on the altar? In the same way, the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should receive their living from the gospel. But I have not used any of these rights, and I am not writing this in the hope that you will do such things for me, for I would rather die than allow anyone to deprive me of this boast. For when I preach the gospel, I cannot boast, since I am compelled to preach. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. If I preach voluntarily, I have a reward. If not voluntarily, I am simply discharging the trust committed to me. What then is my reward? Just this, that in preaching the gospel, I may offer it free of charge, and so not make full use of my rights as a preacher of the gospel. Though I am free and belong to no one, I have made myself a slave to everyone, to win as many as possible. To the Jews, I became like a Jew, to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, so as to win those under the law. To those not having the law, I became like one not having the law, though I am not free from God's law, but I am under Christ's law, so as to win those not having the law. To the weak, I became weak to win the weak. I have become all things to all people, so that by all possible means I might save some. I do all this for the sake of the gospel, that I may share in its blessings. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, I do not run like someone running aimlessly. I do not fight like a boxer beating the air. No, I strike a blow to my body and make it my slave, 
so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. What are we going to do with that? Now, we are continuing in our study of uh, this rich book of 1 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul's letter to the church in Corinth, which was in ancient Greece. We've just been taking it chapter by chapter, and we're continuing now with chapter 9 of 1 Corinthians. Uh, let's first pause and pray together. Let's pray. God, our great hope today in these minutes we have together is your own loyalty to your word. Uh, this is not a time that's going to be spent in vain. We know that already because you've promised uh, to fill your word, to re-preach your word to our hearts. Uh, you've promised to send your spirit through your words straight into our hearts to bear fruit, to change lives. And so we pray that you would do that now, that you'd make good on all of those promises. And God, I bring myself to you. I, I feel weak. You know that. And I pray that you would use me and that you would uh, not only make these words clear, but also that you would uh, touch every ear and every heart and that we would be receptive together to all that you have to say to us about all these things, but most of all about Jesus. So please come. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. A man on vacation was strolling along outside of his resort hotel overseas enjoying the warm and sunny weather when suddenly he heard a woman screaming and saw her kneeling desperately in front of her child. Well, this man, he knew just enough of this local language to be able to figure out that the child apparently had just swallowed a coin. And so he grabbed the child by the heels, turned him upside down and held him up and gave him a few shakes. And then an American penny drops to the sidewalk. Oh, thank you, sir, the woman cried. You seem to know just how to get that money out of him. Are you a doctor? No, man, no, ma'am, the man replied. I'm with the IRS. <laughs> I don't try a lot of those, y'all. You ought to give me a little bit more than that, you know. Well, 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 it happens to be tax season, mercy to you accountants out there, and we've come to a passage that happens to discuss wages and earnings, but actually this isn't a lesson on taxes, and it's not actually even really about money. This passage is about love. We have to sort through a couple of layers, a few additional lessons in order to see how. How is this a lesson about love? Well, in the last chapter, chapter 8, which we looked at about two weeks ago, Paul called the Corinthian Christians to give up their freedom, their right in Christ to eat certain kinds of foods out of their love, their concern for other brothers and sisters. And so just before we land on this passage, here was the key question that was posed. Are you willing to give up 
a Christian right or a, a Christian joy or freedom if it hinders you from being able to love or serve someone else? Are you willing to give it up for the sake of love? Well, here in chapter 9, Paul is continuing with that same theme, but now he's using his own life as an example of this principle. There's a lot that's going on in these verses. Your mind might have wandered a little bit as our brother Kevin was reading it. So I'm going to try to explain and summarize Paul's argument for you. And as we do, what we find are three themes that sort of emerge from this passage. And those three themes are these. Number one, the right to material support. Number two, the freedom to give it up. And number three, the bondage of gospel love. The right to material support, the freedom to give it up, and thirdly, the bondage of gospel love. Let's look at each of those in turn. The right to material support. Paul, here in this passage, argues that as an apostle, he has the biblical right to receive material and financial support from the church. Apparently, there were some Corinthian Christians who not only questioned Paul's authority as an apostle, they also questioned whether as an apostle, they ought to really need to support him financially. And so verse 4 raises this rhetorical question. Don't we have the right to food and drink? And in verse 6, or is it only I and Barnabas who lack the right to not work for a living? How does Paul make this case? First, he draws from common sense examples. We find those in verses 7 and 8. He says a soldier, you know, isn't expected to pay out of pocket for their food or lodging or military equipment. Or someone who plants a vineyard is always allowed to eat some of the grapes while also tending the vines. And how about a shepherd? Well, a shepherd isn't restricted from drinking some of the sheep's milk, but rather is free to make use of the sheep that he's tending. See, if someone works for something, it's reasonable to allow them to share in the fruit of their labor. Then Paul also then applies and appeals to Scripture. So in verse 9, he quotes Deuteronomy 25, 4, which says, Do not muzzle an ox while it is treading out the grain. So if the Bible even permits even a, a plowing cow to sort of eat while it's plowing to enjoy the fruit of its labor, how much more goes the argument? How much more so an apostle plowing the fields of ministry. And so he states in verse 10, whoever plows and threshes should be able to do so in the hope of sharing in the harvest. If we have sown spiritual seed among you, is it too much if we reap a material harvest from you? Paul also appeals to no less an authority than Jesus himself, alluding to Luke chapter 10, verse 7, when he says in verse 14 here, In the same way, the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should receive their living from the gospel. They have a right to receive material and financial support from the church. 
Now, as you can imagine, that teaching, this teaching here has served as the basis for the historic church's commitment to supporting its pastors as well as other full-time ministry workers like church staff. I want to say that our church, through the leadership of the session of elders across our network, has always been kind and, and generous in the way that it has approached these matters. For myself, pastors like myself and Yancey, as well as the way in which the tone has been set for the way we care for our ministry staff. You might have also noticed that this principle could also be applied more broadly, uh, that uh, employees should be compensated fairly, uh, that employers shouldn't exploit their workers, that it's appropriate for companies to give their workers the opportunity to uh, sort of enjoy the fruit of their labor, to share in the successes of the organization or company. It would really be worth reflecting on different kinds of applications of this one basic principle that Paul begins this passage with. This principle that servants of the gospel have a right to receive material support from the church. That's the first theme. But here's the second theme. The freedom to give it up. Because Paul continues his argument by explaining that while he has the right to material support for the sake of the gospel, he has chosen not to exercise that right and instead chooses to serve the church on a volunteer basis instead. You might have noticed in the second half of verse 12, he says this, but we did not use this right. On the contrary, we've put up with anything rather than hinder the gospel of Christ. And in verse 15, but I have not used any of these rights. And in verse 17, if I preach voluntarily, I have a reward. If not voluntarily, I'm simply discharging the trust committed to me. What then is my reward? Just this, that in preaching the gospel, I may offer it free of charge and so not make full use of my rights as a preacher of the gospel. Just to be clear, Paul did occasionally receive gifts from churches. He writes about this in the book of Philippians and 2 Corinthians and other places. But he actually never received regular local support in the churches that he helped to start up. Instead, from what we can kind of piece together from his letters, Paul, he made tents. He was a tent maker, and he sold them in the marketplace locally in order to support himself, in order to support his ministry. So he didn't make use of this apostolic right to be paid and supported. He supported himself, but why? Why did Paul choose to preach voluntarily? Well, he explains, he said, you heard it, he doesn't want to hinder the gospel. And in verse 18, he talks about offering the gospel free of charge, which might sound like strange language, but actually most commentators believe that he's alluding with that language, alluding to the many public orators that traveled around cities like Corinth. They were very popular in those days. They were sort of traveling guest speakers, uh, lecturers in the language of our town here. It wasn't uncommon for them to use these great speaking talents 
to seek fame and fortune. And they would collect large speaking fees, also common in our town. Paul deliberately wanted to distance himself from them, from those self-seeking orators, from their motives. You see, Paul wanted to protect the integrity of the gospel, to make sure that it was clear that he was offering through Christ the free gift of grace, the free gift of life, not to be confused at all with any kind of need for payment or compensation or transaction. But Paul also pointed to an even more positive motivation. He says in verses 17 and 18 that he does this for a special reward that he receives, specially because he does it for free. He uses the language of boast. You hear that word twice. That's not talking about bragging. That's talking about the joy that fills his heart. That he gets a unique joy of proclaiming the gospel, not because he's being paid, but simply because of God's grace. Simply because of the overflow of joy that he experiences first from Christ and now through Christ in service to his people. Paul points to the immense value of avoiding a fee-for-service mindset and instead treasures the honor of serving out of a voluntary response to God's generosity to him, his lavish grace. And so before we move off this point, it's important to notice, well, of course, there may be on some level a gospel right to material support from churches for those who are in ministry of the gospel full-time. And yet here, there's an important reminder, even warning, not to do so looking for external rewards. That pastors and ministry workers need to be careful, even prudent, cautious, as to the ways in which their motivations are being construed by the general public, the ways in which they might be perceived as preaching, as shepherding, as leading for personal gain and fame and fortune. Run the other way, Paul says. Rather, make yourself destitute than corrupt the reputation of the gospel of grace. Important words, sobering words. Ministers, ministry people, do we hear this? What are you willing to give up? for the sake of preserving the power and the integrity of the gospel. And of course, for all of us together, the bigger, deeper, underlying principle applies to all of us. Paul here giving up something that he is on some level entitled to. Uh, some enjoyment, some uh, pleasure, some uh, just desserts. And yet he gives it up for the sake of serving other people with the gospel of grace. What have you been unwilling to let go of? Something that you feel like you have a right to. Something you feel like you deserve. Are there any entitlements in life? Whether security or comfort or maybe even pay. That you've been unwilling to relinquish, to surrender. Maybe it's reputation and fame. 
that you've been unwilling to relinquish and surrender for the sake of loving someone, most especially loving them by bringing them both in word and in deeds, the good news of Jesus. Let me ask it one more time. Friends, are you willing to give up your freedoms for the sake of loving other people? Paul says yes. And he says it's his freedom that gives him the freedom to let go. It's the joy that he has discovered in Christ. It's the fullness that he has having been forgiven, having been loved, having been changed by the gospel of grace as you too and I too can be changed. When your heart is full, your hands open up and overflow with generosity and freedom. Paul talks about this freedom to give it up. He talks about the right to material support. And then we also find a third theme, the bondage of gospel love. The bondage of gospel love. That's strange wording. It's provocative, intentionally so, because I'm getting it right from this passage. Did you know? Did you see? Two times in the last couple paragraphs of this passage, Paul uses the language of becoming, of making himself a slave to describe the zeal with which he's willing to clear out the path for loving people with the gospel. He, he puts himself, subjects himself to loving bondage, he says. As it reads in verse 19, though I am free and belong to no one, I have made myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. Uh, Paul understands that he has, for the sake of the gospel, embraced a life of hardship, a life of constraint. This is gospel love. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 9 and 10, Paul writes, Surely you remember, brothers and sisters, our toil and hardship. We worked night and day in order not to be a burden to anyone while we preached the gospel of God to you, making those tents, selling them in the marketplace, night and day, laboring then on top of that for the sake of the people of God, who in another letter Paul said the stress of which was just debilitating at times, it was a hard life that Paul signed up for out of gospel love. And then he adds to it by saying, this is a love that compels me to love now cross-culturally as well. Paul says, as I just read, though I'm free and belong to no one, I've made myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. And then he explains what he means by that kind of constraining love that might even be described as bondage. Well, he's talking about the labor of connecting with all kinds of people. He says, to the Jews, I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law, talking about the Jews, I became like one 
under the law, though I myself am not under the law, so as to win those under the law, by which he means that even though I believe in Christ, I'm free from having to follow the cultural customs and rituals and ceremonies in the Jewish tradition in order to be accepted by God. I'm free from that, and yet even so, culturally, I will immerse myself to be near my own people, Paul being a Jew himself, in order to build bridges, in order to be at the table together with them. I will follow the food laws, though I'm free to eat these foods that, are restri- that they're restricted from. I will, eat, I will refrain from eating in order to be in relationship with them, to be in fellowship with them, to build bridges with them. And he says, I do the same with non-Jewish people, Gentiles. Where he says in verse 21, to those not having the law, I became like one not having the law, though I am not free from God's law, but am under Christ's law, so as to win those not having the law. And again, Paul, with the flexibility of the gospel, says, well, I'm free in Christ, and so therefore I'm willing to eat along with the Gentiles, not restricted from certain foods, eating pork and shellfish and the rest, that I can actually build relationships and I'll do whatever I can to become like my Corinthian neighbors, to become like my Roman friends, to become like that Greek individual that I'm seeking to build a relationship with, that I'm even subjecting myself to their cultural forms in order to gain a hearing of the gospel. Paul is talking about the way in which we give ourselves to other cultures and people of other backgrounds in order to build relationships, fellowship across our racial and ethnic differences for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of gaining a hearing of the gospel, for the sake of fellowshipping in the gospel. It's an appropriate lesson for us to be reminded of, especially following after this past week, during which we remembered the 50th anniversary of the assassination of Dr. King in Memphis, Tennessee. And as the nation together looks back in order to look forward to say, where do we go from here? How far have we come or not come in our interracial relationships? And where do we need to go from here? But it's a question, of course, we're always posing in our community, being one that's committed in our values and vision to growing as a cross-cultural community, allowing the gospel of grace to bring us together across our racial and ethnic differences, even divisions. And what this is reminding us here, through the language of the bondage of gospel love, is that what we're called to do is not simply just to be in a room together and just simply to get along, but rather to stoop low, to submit ourselves to one another, uh, to see the world through one another's cultural eyes, and to love each other, walking in each other's cultural skin. That we collectively as a church community are committed 
to submitting ourselves to, in love, submitting ourselves to the local black and brown communities here in our neighborhood and city that have been historically marginalized, not only in this city, but also in the American church. And I'm only simply taking the language that Paul has given to us here. He says, I've made myself a slave, submitting myself to the very ones that I'm seeking to build relationships with. And what does that sound like then? What does that look like? Listening. Uh, uh, Unplugging my own ears with my own thoughts and assumptions and rather listening, submitting my ears to my neighbor. Hearing what life is like from them, what these issues are perceived as from their point of view. It means putting their interests first, the core concerns of the local African-American community, Latino community, of putting other people's needs before our own. It means making room for other people, uh, deliberately and intentionally, sacrificially making room in the community for our neighbors to have a voice, to have a place to experience flourishing and even comfort. Because see, subjecting ourselves in gospel love to our neighbors means assuming discomfort upon ourselves in order to provide comfort for our neighbors. It means making yourself uncomfortable. It means letting yourself lose control over the agenda or over the the things in community life that make you feel like you belong so that another neighbor might feel like they belong. For the sake of the gospel, that they might hear the gospel and receive Christ or that they might fellowship with you in the gospel And here's the thing that we have to notice with Paul's provocative language of the bondage of gospel love is that it's hard. It doesn't always feel good. And it takes a lot of sacrifice. It's why the Apostle Paul closes this section with this language of training for a marathon, a race. You know, Corinth was actually the location for what was called the Isthmian Games. Those were second only to the Olympic Games that were so famous in that region of the Mediterranean. Of course, the capstone event was the big race, at the end of which the winner would receive a crown of branches and leaves that were twisted together and Paul says, look, loving like this for the sake of the gospel is like being an athlete in training. That even when you're committed to bringing as many people as possible from whatever station in life they might be and whatever background in life they might be from, that it entails enduring physical and even emotional hardship. Like training, like running, like falling and picking yourself up, Paul says, I strike a blow to my body and make it my slave. Here's that word again. Submitting myself, even at great cost to myself, in order to love my neighbor. And of course, the analogy works like this. Paul knows that he's 
given up material support. He's given up personal comfort. Now he's also given up his own agenda, entering into the cultural worlds of those around him, doing it again and again and again, which means sometimes his needs not being met in order to meet the needs of other people, especially the ultimate needs of their salvation in Christ. And the question again is how far are you willing to go? At how much cost to yourself? How much self-denial because of love are you willing to endure? Because, dear friends, gospel ministry is a ministry of self-forgetfulness and self-sacrifice. Who are you willing to love and how far are you willing to love? This is hard for us, of course, because we prefer to love without constraints, just when it works for me, open-ended, non-committal, let me bail out or exit when it gets too hard. Sure, I'm willing to love and serve, but as long as I can protect and preserve and maintain as much as my independence as possible. And here's the love of Paul. Here's the love of Christ. It's a gospel love that constrains. A gospel love that binds. A gospel love that submits. Of course, because it's the gospel love of Jesus. Jesus, who Paul in another letter to the Philippian church in chapter 2 said, He made himself like a slave to love you, to love me. Jesus, who being in very nature God, didn't consider equality with God, these rights he had as God himself, something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a slave. Being made in human likeness, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself, becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Putting everyone's needs before his own, including our greatest need for him to die in our place in order to be made right with God. That's how we're called to love. Do you see this vision, this portrait of the bondage of love? And it starts with Paul giving up his entitlements and rights. It moves to him putting the gospel first and putting other people first and then him entering into this willingness to say, by, at whatever cost, whatever it takes, I want to love them. I want to communicate the gospel to them. I want to celebrate the gospel together with them. Do you know the bondage of love? I mean, first and foremost, do you know that love as one that you've received? Christ putting himself in bondage for you. Have you been loved like that? Because if you have, then he starts to change your heart, doesn't he? And he teaches you to love like him. There's one way that I want to apply this. It's one long explanation, exposition, to get to one application here for you today. It's supposed to be 77 degrees by Friday. I know it doesn't seem like it. It's been a long, long winter. But whether you've been around for a long time or not here in Washington, D.C., you know things change a little bit in the springtime. In the wintertime, everyone hides out and hibernates. You don't even know that you have neighbors on your street. 
People move from one door to the next door, hop to the metro, maybe in their car, hide out as often as they can. Kids stay indoors. They don't want to, but they're forced to. And then the cherry blossoms blossom and the sun comes out and the weather warms. And, and then after a week, it's about 90 degrees, but we won't get there, you know. <laughs> and what opens up, what blossoms, as it were, more than the trees, it's the opportunities to love your neighbor. Because you finally see each other. You've, you're finally lingering outside, not just darting to the nearest warm doorway. You're finally lingering outside long enough to actually say hello or maybe get to know a name or maybe get to know a story or maybe learn to bear a burden uh, where there's just enough time to pass by each other in the garden, in the playground, on the street, on the way to work, on the way to play. There's opportunities to build relationships to love your neighbor, to love with loving constraints, gospel love, which means, among other things, loving intentionally for the sake of the gospel, looking for opportunities to build relationships which might extend far beyond this summer, an open doorway to talk about Jesus, to share the love and the grace of Christ, to maybe share your own story and testimony, but you know when that opportunity finally comes, you look back and it was 18 months prior when you finally had a conversation in the first place that began that relationship of trust. But sometimes it takes a little bit of intentionality, a little bit of interrupting your own pattern, maybe even intentionally walking a different way, a longer way, because you don't need to get home that fast. What's another three minutes if you might have a lifetime of friendship with a neighbor, if you might spend an eternity with them because of gospel salvation in Christ. And of course, there's this call that this passage presses upon us, not only the intentionality of building relationships with neighbors, especially those who maybe might be new to the gospel, to the Christian faith, some of you whom are here today, love having you here, but also the call of intentionality and sacrifice to love across cultural differences as well. That we might, like Paul says here, uh, make ourselves uh, servants to people of other cultures, intentionally going out of our way, laying down our entitlements to comfort, to a sense of belonging, whether on the block or even in these pews, to make room for other people, to put their interests before your own, which might mean learning what their interests even are as individuals, of course, but also as a community. What's most on the throbbing hearts of our black neighbors, of our Latino neighbors, of every neighbor? Are we listening with gospel ears? Are we discoursing and having conversations and even weeping and laughing with gospel-changed hearts? Are we willing to step into the constraint of intentionality, to the constraint of cross-cultural community and neighborhood? Maybe it means that you make sure you find Walter and the other members of the diaconate. So you put some feet to some of these stirring convictions in your heart and you say, I do want to walk across the street. I want to find out what's going on in this neighborhood, opportunities we might have now that the weather's warming up to build new relationships, 
to meet them in the boys and girls club, to meet them in the playground around the corner, to meet them on these streets right out here on these very front steps. Sign me up. I want a canvas. I want a network. I want to know. I want to see. I want to listen. I want to love. Don't you want to love like that? Don't you want a neighbor like that? Don't you want to be like Paul? Don't you want to be like Jesus? The one who gave it all up even unto death, to love for the sake of the gospel. Will you, will we also love even unto death for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of our neighbors, for the sake of Christ? Let's pray. Pray, Holy Spirit, that you would come and change our hearts, move through our hands and feet, Make us neighbors like you. Teach us to love like you. For some of us, the first step is we need to receive your love. We're trying to will ourselves into service and community. What we most need to do is surrender ourselves to the love of Christ. Do that work first in all of our hearts. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together and let's sing.